every Monday to Friday. This is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. Welcome to Tuesday and the final day of the month. It's the 31st of October 2023. Happy Halloween. This is Peter Lewis welcoming you to Money Talk. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the US Treasury Department has announced that it expects to borrow 776 billion US dollars in the October to December quarter, but that's less than the 852 billion initially forecast and lower than the 1 trillion dollars borrowed the previous quarter, which was the highest ever for that particular quarter. The borrowing level appeared to be somewhat below Wall Street's expectations of around 800 billion when the Treasury announced in July its heightened borrowing needs. It sparked a sell-off in the bond markets that saw yields hit their highest levels since 2007. China Evergrande, the world's most indebted developer, with about 2.39 trillion yuan of total liabilities, that's 327 billion US dollars, has been given one last chance to come up with a new deal over its huge debts or face liquidation. A winding up hearing, initially scheduled for yesterday, was adjourned to December the 4th. High Court Justice Linda Chan said Evergrande had to come up with a concrete proposal before that, otherwise it was likely the company would be wound up. The Bank of Japan started its two-day monetary policy meeting yesterday with the yen under pressure from the widening differential in yields between the US and Japan. Last week, the yen briefly fell through the 150 mark, a level that's previously sparked intervention by the Japanese authorities. On Monday, the yen strengthened 0.4% against the dollar to 149.08 yen after the Nikkei reported that the Bank of Japan could adjust its yield curve control tool to let government bond yields top 1%. HSBC's profit after tax came in at 6.26 billion US dollars in the three months ended September, jumping 235% from the same period last year. The bank also warned of the risk of a further deterioration in China's property sector and set aside 500 million US dollars in funds for losses related to exposure to the commercial real estate sector in mainland China. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant Stuart Aldcroft, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US Economics Correspondent, Writer and Broadcaster Barry Wood. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. While you're there, take a look at my daily newsletter, crammed with information on Asia's business and financial environments. On Wall Street, U.S. stocks surged ahead of a busy week with the Federal Reserve meeting this week, the jobs report and Apple's earnings on Thursday. Stocks were boosted Monday by an unwind of geopolitical risk premium with the Israeli ground invasion only being described as a gradual invasion. The S&P 500 jumped 1.2% to 4,167 in its best performance since late August and ending the day out of correction territory. The S&P 500 fell into correction mode last week when it dropped more than 10% from its 2023 closing high. It's off 2.8% so far for October on course for its third straight negative month. The Dow gained 511 points, that's 1.6% to 32,929, its best day since June the 2nd. The Nasdaq Composites rose 1.2% to 12,789. Bond prices were lower across the board. The 10-year Treasury yield, which jumped above 5% last week, traded around 4.89% on Monday, that's four basis points higher on the day. 
The World Bank warned on Monday that crude oil prices could rise to more than $150 a barrel if the Israel-Hamas conflict escalates. However, yesterday, Brent crude oil settled 3.2% lower at $86.35 a barrel. Gold ended the day half a percent weaker at $1,996 an ounce. Gold is up 8% so far in October. And the US dollar index fell 0.4% to 106.14 as geopolitical concerns eased over the weekend. The Chinese yuan was steady at 7.31 and a third renminbi in Shanghai. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composites rose 0.2% to 3,022. That's the fifth straight day of gains. After more than 30 mainland listed companies announced share buybacks or purchase plans over the weekend. In Hong Kong, the Hang Seng Index recouped early losses of as much as 1% to close 8 points higher at 17,349. The Hang Seng Index has dropped 2.3% this month and is also on track for a third straight monthly loss. The Tech Index rose 1.3% Monday, adding to its gain of 3.9% last week. And it does look like the Hang Seng is going to give up uh, some gains this morning. Futures markets pointing to a loss of about 125 points at the open. That's 0.7%. The index should start around 17,280. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. And as it's Halloween, we've picked some very spooky, extra scary guests for you this morning. <laughs> Starting off with Stuart Allcroft, Asia Fund Management Industry Consultant. Morning, Stuart. I'm not sure I like to be called spooky. Good morning. <laughs> oh, it's scary then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's even worse, Peter. Come on. <laughs> also with us on this special Halloween program, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia. Morning to you, Mark. Uh, boo to everyone, I, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> boo to you too. <laughs> and over in the US, where it all started, we had Barry Wood, our economics correspondent <laughs> and writer and broadcaster. Morning to you, Barry, and happy Halloween. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Good morning, everyone. Now, look, let's start with the US. Um, first of all, there was some interesting data out from the US Treasury, which in some ways could be more important than what the Fed does on Thursday morning. The US Treasury Department announced that it expects to borrow $776 billion in this current quarter. Now, that is less than the $852 billion initially forecast, and it's also lower than $1 trillion that was borrowed in the previous quarter, which was actually the highest ever level for that particular quarter. Officials attributed, attributed the local borrowing needs to higher tax income and the borrower level appeared to be somewhat below Wall Street expectations of around $800 billion. I mean, Barry, these are still enormous numbers, aren't they? Borrowing close to a trillion dollars a quarter um, at the moment, but nevertheless, um, less than what the markets were expecting. Could this help calm the bond markets a little bit? Well, I'm not a bond expert. I think you are. I think uh, Stuart is. I think Mark is. But I don't think it's going to have an enduring effect because, let's face it, the bottom line is this is a huge number, as you said. And we have a fiscal deficit for the current fiscal year that will be in excess of 5% of GDP, 6%. This cannot go on. And I think that uh, while tax revenue was higher, that's good news. Maybe that gives some momentary boost to the bond market and uh, drives down interest rates marginally. But uh, that's all I can say. 
Mm. That number, um, that, that is $1.7 trillion, the budget deficit. I mean, as you say, Barry, it's a, it's a huge number, isn't it? That um, presumably is costing a lot now in interest expenses out of the budget. Absolutely. With rates that are much higher than they were a year ago. Finally, in the financial media here in the States, you're seeing discussion about the fiscal impact of higher interest rates on government debt. That is going to, of course, not get any better until rates come down. And they're not coming down. So this is going to be, I hope, at least the beginning of a debate about how we can raise more revenue, how we can cut spending. But maybe that's heroic even to assume that. Yeah, I wonder, Barry, that... um... You know, there's a little clue in all of this, which um, I think we should take a little bit more notice of. Um, employment, uh, unemployment rates are at very low levels in the U.S. Therefore, employment is at very high levels. Uh, profitability by companies is is still very high indeed in the U.S. And both of these are creating much higher tax revenues for the government than probably had been forecast. And I, I think this is the key to, to the situation, and that is that tax is coming in at a much higher rate, and therefore the need for um, um, borrowing is going to get lower and lower over the next um, maybe couple of quarters. And I think that's that seems to me like a much more positive scenario than probably had been expected by the Fed when this first started. Um, so it, it, it probably will lead to the Fed not taking um, a decision to increase interest rates tomorrow. But I think that we are, I mean, we, look, we are looking obviously at a, a big borrowings, but the fact is that the um, government is now able to do it because they've got a speaker in the House. Mm-hmm. Well, you're right on that one, uh, Stuart. Uh, look, if you can assume that tax revenue is going to remain at these high levels because of corporate earnings being high, I'm not sure that's going to persist for the next six months. I hope you're right, but I doubt it. Well, the, the earnings reports have been rather mixed, haven't they, so far, that have come out this, uh, this quarter? Well, they've not only been mixed, but when they've been good news, like Google Alphabet last week, the market responded by sending the stock price down 6%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, does it? Mm-hmm. And uh, the same could happen with Apple. The, the, the reality is Apple is not growing, and it's been a growth company for the last decade. So we'll see what happens. They're right in the midst in the next 30 minutes of having a big event in Cupertino, San Francisco, but with new products. So, but they're not growing. And, and that has got the attention of investors. Mm. Yeah, and, the, and the Apple problem, of course, is partly related to China to, to a considerable extent, especially in, in phones, since uh, uh, Huawei is now uh, now seems a lot stronger and that's been a big part of uh, apple's success over the past couple of years mm. well we got their results yeah, coming I, out on thursday so that's also going to be a big event of the week yeah but the, this magnificent seven as we've called them of uh, top tech tech companies is not responsible for its proportion of tax in the u.s it is the majority of other companies that is responsible for the majority of tax so we uh, yes um, we do see 
that these companies are big, they're very profitable, they represent a significant portion of the stock exchange, but they're not they're not the deliverer of revenue to the U.S. government. And that is, that is the U.S. government's problem as much as it is anybody else's. And, um, and so I think that needs to be uh, looked at too. The, the, the vast majority of companies in the U.S. that have been contributing are continuing to be profitable. And this is, this is a positive sign. Um, and, and I'm sure the Fed will take that into account in its decision making. This budget deficit of 1.7 trillion, how on earth is Congress going to be able to get it down? Because the Republicans don't want to cut defence spending. The, the Democrats don't want to cut Social Security like Medicare, Medicaid. And they're by far the two biggest parts um, of the budget each year. Unless something's done about them, there's not going to be much hope is there of getting it down. Well, the government still has the ability to raise that money. Um, and, of course, if it were to increase increase taxes, which I don't think it will, but uh, it, that, that's a, a measure that could be taken that would possibly help to that. I think it's expecting that the economy will remain basically sound, strong, and not have any... Um, uh, not not uh, go into any form of recession. And I think that's probably why the US government... And the Fed has the confidence that it can borrow the money and uh, continue to borrow money. Barry, on that, on that, we had the data out last week. US GDP expanded by 4.9% in the third quarter, easily beating economists' expectations of 4.5%. Um, consumer spending was the big um, driver of that. It rose 4%. That's the most since the final quarter of 2021. I mean, I, I'm just amazed, um, Barry, that the consumer just seems to be able to go on and on and on in the US, which is at odds with what we're seeing consumers doing elsewhere in the world, in China and, uh, and in Europe in particular. It's true. I just cannot see how that can carry on. It just It's uh, not only counterintuitive, I think that uh, the impact, all I can say, and I know I'm a broken record, is that the impact of higher interest rates has not yet been felt. And yet we see it in, in uh, automobile purchases on time. Most of them do purchase an automobile on, say, a five or even six-year monthly payment. Uh, that's going to click in at some point. Uh, the fact that the United States economy is growing at this rapid pace with such low unemployment is indeed a huge surprise. You're absolutely right. And to come to your previous question, Peter, is there any hope? How can there be hope that the Congress can act on raising revenue or reducing the budget deficit? They can't. It's uh, maybe after the 2024 election, but I can't see anything happening over the next year. What does this? Um, sorry, Stuart, you was going to say. No, no, no I was just going to say. I, it's hard to disagree with what Barry just said. I wish I could. <laughs> it's not, not not looking too too favorable in the next uh, next year or so. Is the consumer digging into his uh, savings now to fund all of this um, spending? Because surely, you know, all the stimulus checks must have run out um, ages ago. So the money they built up over the last few quarters, that's, that must be what they're running down now in order to, to, to fund all this uh, spending spree, which suggests, as Barry says, it can't really go on for too much longer. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it is that situation that, that is the reality. I don't think uh, you can read any number of articles that say that most Americans don't even have enough savings now to handle a 
500 or a thousand dollar emergency well then how are they going to spend all this money mm. we're coming you know if you look at that third quarter that includes you know august september that was still summer holidays people traveled they spent money so i mean i just i would be shocked if there's anything approaching that for the fourth quarter okay well, look, um, China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi, he has been in, uh, in Washington. He said the road to the San Francisco summit will not be a smooth one. He's referring there to an expected meeting between President Xi Jinping and President Joe Biden in November on the sidelines uh, of the APEC comet, uh, summit. How, how important is this going to be, this, uh, this meeting? Are there hopes or signs that maybe it could reduce the stresses between the US and China? Um, yes and yes. I think that, that we're already seeing um, a quite a significant reduction in the uh, levels of stress and um, conflict in, in words, at least, between the US and China. The frequency with which you've got very senior level politicians meeting each other in different locations. It was being, it was the case they were meeting in Beijing. Now they're meeting in Washington. Uh, this, this is very positive, and I think we, we underestimate the, the, the level of positivity that's going on in terms of, of um, the U.S.-China uh, dialogues. Um, I can't, can't imagine that if uh, Xi Jinping and Joe Biden are in the same town, possibly even in the same hotel, there won't be an opportunity taken for them to meet up, even if it's for only one hour um, when they're in San Francisco next month. It's just, uh, it would be unimaginable for them not to have that opportunity taken. Um, Of course, the big thing is whether President Xi Jinping will actually go to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. He hasn't uh, either confirmed or denied that trip and and it's basically an assumption that most of us are making that he will attend. Joe Biden clearly will attend. Mm. So I, I, I can't imagine that they won't meet up, but it's it's always good to sort of put a little bit of a, um, uh, an uncertainty out there if you're a politician until you know for certain. Mark, are your it, members feeling more optimistic about the state of relations between the US and China? Not, unfortunately, not so much. Uh, at least in, having just been in, in Shanghai uh, about a week and a half ago, they're, 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 of course, encouraged by these meetings that have been going on. And as Stuart said, the meeting in San, the APEC meeting in San Francisco is important, not just because of, of Xi and Biden meeting, but what that also triggers for other meetings and for other, uh, other ways of, of cooperating at various different levels in the U.S. government in various different ways. We've seen, uh, we've seen indications of that when Commerce Secretary has come and Treasury Secretary has come and 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 uh, and, the, and the secretary and the secretary of state and so on. That's certainly a harbinger. But of course, meetings at the at at sort of somewhat lower levels are very important too, because that's how things get done. But still, the atmosphere and Barry can talk about this more than I is not so great in either place in terms of U.S.-China relations. And as Barry said, in the next year, it's going to be sort of volatile, not just for uh, dealing with the with budget deficits, but uh, but also with politics and especially U.S.-China politics. So I'll see, I think we'll see ups and downs, but I think Stuart is right to point at San Francisco, at least as an indicator, and it may calm things down for a while. The other indicator that we had was the um, 
defense ministers meeting that defense meeting that's that's taking place in the in the past few days where um, the Chinese signal that they looking for greater cooperation with the U.S. at the same time attacking the U.S. for various policies uh, toward Ukraine and Israel and so on. But at the same time, at least it wasn't so negative and there was maybe a, a little light there. So we're seeing some shoots, but we're not sure how much they're going to grow. Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I was just on a uh, Council of Foreign Relations conference call with Kevin Rudd, the now Australian ambassador to the United States. Kevin, of course, a Chinese speaker and long has championed his his observations about China. He says this will be a very difficult summit and that there's almost nothing that these two countries agree on. But the fact, and I think Stuart is right, the fact that it's going to take place, however, we should be aware that the Wang Yi visit did not result in any statement that indicated that they would meet, but it is assumed that they will. So, yes, maybe the downward spiral is stopped, but we certainly don't see any rapprochement. The trouble yeah, is, I is, think, I think that's it. And there, you know, there's still those vulnerabilities. U.S. putting the the pressure on on Chinese tech, um, chips, and so on. China putting the pressure on on green technology for the U.S. and and solar panels and the rest of it that's important to uh, to U.S. policy in that area. There are a lot of trigger points that are still very, very uh, sensitive to political change. John, it's so easy to blow this relationship off course, isn't it? It just takes one incident like we saw at the beginning of the year with the balloon being shot down um, over the United States. One thing and then the whole meeting is off and, and we're back to square one again. Yeah, I think that's true. It's, it's, it's regrettable, but uh, this is not a good time. And yet these two countries really do need each other. You could make the case probably need each other more than they have for several years. Oh. And, I, and I, I think there's understanding... Um, top leadership in both countries, if that's true. It's just a question of actually carrying that out that's uh, that's more challenging. Well, let's move okay. on. Let's talk about central banks, because there's several central banks meeting to uh, this week, the Fed later on this week, well, in fact, starts its two-day monetary policy meeting later today. The Bank of England on Thursday. The Bank of Japan's already started its two-day monetary policy decision yesterday. We should get the decision uh, later today. The yen is under pressure because of that vast difference, differential in yield. US 10-year Treasury yields 4.89%. The Japanese government bond around 0.9% capped by the BOJ's yield curve control at 1%. Now, there is, was a report yesterday in the Nikkei that the Bank of Japan could adjust its yield curve control tool and let government bond yields top 1%. The problem is the Bank of Japan has a habit of teasing us, doesn't it, over what it's going to do here. And it's probably the one central bank that has a habit of sort of surprising um, and shocking. But nevertheless, this is an important meeting, isn't it, uh, Barry? Well, I would think so. You know, I'm reminded of the conversation we had just a couple of weeks ago, William Pesek in Tokyo saying that, you know, the, the Bank of Japan has been a huge disappointment since they had the change of leadership. But now you've got 150 yen to the dollar. And if not now, when are they going to say something meaningful about the exchange rate? Uh, it, it just seems to me that, uh, yes, you're right, Peter. This 
has to be an important meeting, even if they say nothing. And if they don't do anything, Mark and Stuart, then the yen just carries on sliding down the pan, doesn't it? Yeah, it's strange. You know, you, you saw it strengthened in anticipation, free, uh, you know, slightly in, in anticipation of what might be done. But it's not sure what they can be do. The, the Japanese, the current phrase that's popular in Japan is currency market is being compared to a hissing volcano. Which is <laughs> which is very Japanese, but it, but it also is in, indicative of what's going on. And, you know, there's also been talk. Uh, Nikkei suggested they might do away with the uh, with the yield curve completely, which I think was was begun uh, in 2016. I don't. I have no idea whether that's that's an option. But you're right. It's they're teasing us, and I think the bottom line is they're not sure what to do, especially given that they're. They tend to be very cautious and conservative and really don't want to change policy dramatically. But inflation's obviously another concern, which is one they didn't think they'd have. Mm. And they've got to yeah, figure out what to do with that. You've got to remember that this fall in the value of the Japanese yen um, to 150 against the US dollar has been a great boon to manufacturers, Absolutely. importers. Um, the car export industry in Japan is booming right now, and all because the the um, the currency has fallen, and the opportunity they've they've got to to capitalize on that is massive. So I would see this as being still very positive for the overall economy of japan even if interest rates do go up a little bit i don't think that'll change a great deal on the currency um it, it, it's the it's the um it's the trend that is going to be very important here the trend is your friend as they yes, say uh, exactly um, what i was thinking i just i i i agree with agree with Stuart. i think that there's a there's a report that the 20 largest uh, japanese manufacturing manufacturers can expect a 13 billion US dollar windfall from from the yen yields. At the same time, consumers are being affected by inflation and there's been 17 months of negative wage growth, which is not which is not particularly uh, particularly encouraging for them, I guess. And this is great for tourism as well, isn't it? That's another yes, thing course, that's, uh, that, course, that's booming, booming in Japan. Has been, has been for the last six months. Uh, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I'm one of those that took advantage of that. So, yeah. <laughs> I get the impression Does, that Bank of Japan would like to get rid of yield curve control, but it just can't. It's sort of trapped in a hole at the moment. Does the very weak yen put additional pressure on the People's Bank of China concerning the renminbi? Uh, probably does, actually, Barry. And, and of course, bear in mind that... Uh, if Japan is very strong in exports, its major competitor for those exports tends to be China, yeah. and 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 the consequence will be that China will see lower exports, uh, even though it can produce goods cheaper. It, it still hasn't yet reached the same level of quality that Japan has in the eyes of the consumer buying products, and that's and that's the key factor I think here. Okay. Well, also, of course, the Fed is meeting this week as well. We will get their decision in the early hours of Thursday morning, Hong Kong time. Combined with that, there's a whole lot of economic data coming out from the US, the labor market report, the ISM manufacturing and services PMI, the jolts job openings. um, And also we've got more of 
Q3 earnings uh, season with Apple maybe the, uh, the the highlight of the week there. I think, Barry, I mean, most people are, uh, are expecting the Fed uh, to remain on hold. But nevertheless, the pressure is still there, isn't it, on, on the Fed? Inflation's still too high. And there's always the chance yes. that um, they could have to raise rates again. Yes, there is that chance. I, I think the markets clearly have got that right. There won't be a rate rise on Wednesday. But the question then is, well, if the inflation rate remains well above 3.5% as it is now, uh, will there be a rate rise in December? Because there's another Fed meeting coming up. And will the jobs market remain strong? I noticed that the prediction is 175,000 new jobs in October. And of course, there was that huge surprise for September, 338,000 jobs and 3.8% unemployment. So yeah, I think uh, in one sense, this will not be a surprise, uh, what Jay Powell says at this press conference on Wednesday. But looking ahead, uh, you know, the dot plot and what might happen before the end of the year, I think will be significant. And of course, the key is what's going to happen next year and when interest rates are going to start to be um, cut. But the, the Fed seems quite adamant. We've got to get used to these higher rates for a much longer period of time than maybe uh, the markets are expecting. But the uh, the bond vigilantes are out in force at the moment, aren't they? Well, yes, they are. are. <laughs> ah, the bond vigilantes. But my goodness, when you've got interest rates now at a 22-year high, that hasn't made its way through the economy. Uh, I had a debate with uh, a leading economist in terms of he was saying we've got a wage price spiral. Well, certainly the United Auto Workers won against the Detroit Three. But I still don't see a wage price spiral throughout the United States economy. But my goodness, I certainly see that higher interest rates have got to have a negative, a very deleterious effect. Yeah, um, that's because people pay mortgages. Mortgages are sensitive to to interest rate movements, and they've been going up. But I think if we see interest rates uh, stay level at the current rates for a while, um, that's probably going to have a similar effect to that that we've seen over the last 12 months of increases. So I think um, the fact that the Fed may do nothing doesn't mean to say it's doing nothing. It just means that it's satisfied that the interest rate currently is doing the job that it wants to do, keeping the economy on track, keeping inflation at or below 4%, um, and uh, keeping employment at or below or unemployment levels below 4%. So all of that is, in, in some respects, quite positive from, us, from the Fed's perspective. For, for China, I think we should also seem we monitor the central uh the central financial commission which is this regulatory body that's been set up by by the party who set up in march but now it's they're they're filling this the filling this they're staffing it they're putting it up and of course xi jinping visited the people's bank of china for the first <laughs> time ever <laughs> so you know what is the meaning of that and how how much a role is is the leadership going to play now in in the areas that we're talking about and what's the impact of that? I don't know what the answers are, but that that throws a throws a new uh, a, a new new uh, thing we should consider into the process. I mean, what this yeah, means, what this means, sorry, is is that President Xi is going to take much more centralized control, isn't he, over the financial yeah, system? It looks like it. 
Yeah, uh, but Beijing watchers like to think that this is something that is unusual. It is the fact that uh, he's gone to PBOC for the first time, possibly. It doesn't mean he doesn't meet them. They, he usually summons them to him. And, um, and it's probably quite a good thing for him to go out, get out of that and about. Uh, he feels a little bit more confident, safer to do that. That's the whole point, isn't it? Mm. That's part of it. It's a question, too, of what the governor of the central bank's power is. They've never been independent, but at the same time, they've, they've had some flexibility, which has been pretty important uh, traditionally in China. So that's a uh, flexibility in the China sense or a in China sense. Yeah, with, chi with, chi with Chinese characteristics. As we yes, say. I think yeah. that, well, we need to clarify these things. Yeah, sometimes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Is there, is there pressure on China's financial system at the moment? Is that one of the reasons maybe why President Xi went, into, um, went to visit the central bank? There was an article in the FT this week uh, outlining how foreign direct investment into China uh, is plunging. And there's also been a big pickup in capital outflows as well. Although we have to say that uh, the, the PBOC has got massive amounts of reserves, so it can certainly um, handle that. But nevertheless, there is a noticeable pickup, isn't there, in both investment and money? leaving the country as as companies seem to be taking their profits out now rather than reinvesting them yeah I and mean, the, the financial system in china is still massive though it's what uh, 60 70 trillion dollars in size it's um, it's a it's a big it's a big number um and the importance of it is increasing to the same levels of importance that the financial sector have in in europe and america so uh, it, whereas in the past the financial sector was not seen to be quite so important in China, it now is, and I think that, that I think we need to take that into account. And we we still have to remember that they've they've got two of the biggest indebted companies in the world um, that refuse to die. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I, I've been reminded by the dead parrot sketch from Monty Python in respect of <laughs> Evergrande continues to, to sort of keep putting its head. It's a dead company, and yet it refuses to die. But it's nailed to its perch very firmly. <laughs> yes, well, you know, we could go through the script. It's, uh, it's um, pining for the fjords. <laughs> but look, it, it is about to meet its, uh, its end, isn't it? Because it seems like this is its last chance. Nailed to the perch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if John Cle if John Cleese becomes a government spokesperson, then we then we're in trouble, I guess. <laughs> but, but but anyway, I just want to make a quick comment on FDI and foreign direct investment. Just just from our standpoint, just met with over a hundred executives who run China operations for multinational companies, and the basic message, you know, wasn't completely across the board, is that we're committed to China. But almost all of them are hedging their bets, and so they've, you know, they're investing elsewhere. Most of them are not putting new investment in China, and you know, it's a small sample, but it's sort of indicative of what we've we've seen from the numbers. Now that could change over time, and there always are exceptions. The chemical sector, for example, is still still pretty strong in China and still sees a a way forward. But other other areas are. Sticking to China, not most many of them, but at the same time, uh, looking for what else they can do. And are companies taking their money out of China? In other words, taking their profits out rather than reinvesting them, as the FT article suggested? Are you seeing signs of that? 
that they really didn't say so. You know, it could, it could be happening to some extent, and maybe they wouldn't, especially when they have competitors around and, and others they might not want to talk about that. But certainly they're looking at, at all their options, so that, that could be one of them to some to one extent or another, but uh, I can't. Yeah, I, I would be doubtful. I would be yeah. doubtful that they're taking their money out because they, it's it's a difficult task to actually take money out of China at the best of times, whether it be a corporate or an individual. Um, it's been made much tougher for individuals in the last uh, few years. So, so I think that th this is a sort of um, statement that is historic rather than current. Yeah, and the fight is to. Pay, I mean, their their issue is to put more money in, and that's where they're getting resistance from. Yeah, from yeah. boards and from uh, and from uh, from the executive suite. Yeah. Now, now coming back to the dead parrot, better known as China Evergrande, there was a winding up hearing yesterday, which was adjourned to the 4th of December. Now, there's been several adjournments of this um, hearing, but Justice Linda Chan said this is the last chance. They must come up with a concrete proposal before the 4th of December. Otherwise, it was likely the company is going to be wound up. So she was indicating she's run out of patience with Evergrande, keep on uh, putting forward restructuring plans and then tearing them up and starting again. But I presume it's in no one's interests is it if 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 Evergrande is is wound up in Hong Kong because there is the risk that then uh, that could spread into sort of some sort of disorderly collapse well yes I mean it's not just Evergrande is it because um, you've got Country Garden as well just sitting on the fence waiting for for what happens with Evergrande um, and once Ever once Evergrande's situation is decided, then Country Garden, which is about two hundred and fifty billion dollars in debt, um, it will be the next one that comes along. And then there are maybe half a dozen other property companies in China that all have fairly similar situations, although they're not not got the quite the same levels of debt. Yes, it's a long running saga. It is a dead parrot. It is. It should be pushing up the daisies right now, not not the brick. But it's um, it, it, we haven't got that far yet. Um, and Stuart, so, it, is this a financial phenomenon only, or is there a broader economic impact in terms of job losses if both those companies are declared insolvent? Well, it's not job losses so much because the the, big, the biggest problem is they've got thousands, possibly millions, of empty properties, incomplete properties, um, whole towns or estates where. The property has yet to be occupied, um, and they haven't got sign-off for it, and they still need to do work. And, and they would not have been keeping contractors um, on their sites if they can't afford it. And they and 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 that's the that is one of the problems. Actually, the reverse may be true. If they are bailed out, if there is some bailing out, then they may go out and employ a load of people to finish the properties. But mm. then the but the next problem will be who's going to buy them, who's going to live in them. And uh, in some instances, that is very uncertain. Do you get the feeling that Beijing doesn't really care that much about what happens to, to foreign creditors? What they're worried about is the domestic um, side, and therefore they're going to be happy to let the Hong Kong entities of these companies go. In some ways, it might be almost what, what they want. I think that's the impression that is being given, certainly. I'm not sure that it's... I don't think Beijing is not, is actually thinking about it from that perspective at all. But that is the impression that they're, they're giving. Um, but the, 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 the issue um, had, had been, uh, sort of five, ten years ago, that there was a need for property. 
and 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 there was also the issue that property was seen to be for most individuals in China their best form of asset and and wealth creation, and this is now being proven to be not necessarily the case. Um, property prices have fallen quite sharply, um, and and. It is directly as a result of what's happened with Country Garden and uh, Evergrande that the property industry in China is in such a bad way. Well, let me finish uh, domestically. Uh, just before the open this morning, we're going to get Hong Kong advanced estimate of Hong Kong's economic growth. Uh, economists expect it to show third quarter expansion of 5.2% year on year. That was after just 1.5% growth in the second quarter. Uh, Mark, of course, we're comparing this, aren't we, to a year ago when uh, there were pandemic restrictions in place. So, of course, you would expect um, a decent rebound. But nevertheless, are, are you seeing signs of things turning around in Hong Kong or or is it still rather gloomy? It, you know, let's just, just from a perspective of our members, I would say overall, they feel better about Hong Kong going forward. Not ecstatic in most cases, but if, if they have businesses here, uh, they feel a little bit better and they feel that the, the government, maybe imperfectly, is trying to su- support them as, as much as they can. So they, they find they find some, some hope going forward. But still, everybody's very cautious. And I, I think if you look at these numbers, and I'd like to turn to Stuart and maybe Barry to hear what their views are, um, it's, you've got to be cautious about those as well, although it's, it's better than, than the opposite, I guess we'd say, for sure. Yeah, well, given that we only came out of proper lockdown and allowed tourism to restart in January, February this year, yeah. Um, yeah. we still haven't gone through a complete 12-month period yeah, of an open that's right. economy. That's right. So I think um, we're, we're doing okay. We're not doing as well as we probably could do in Hong Kong, but it's picking up and it's going in absolutely the right direction. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, thank you very much for your thoughts there. We covered a wide range of uh, topics in uh, the 40, 45 minutes. So, yeah, yes. we even got onto dead parrots. <laughs> uh, yes. Not many financial <laughs> programs do that for you. <laughs> Only on Money Talk. You heard there, Stuart Allcroft, Asian Fund Management Industry Consultant, Mark Michelson, Chairman of the Asia CEO Forum at IMA Asia, and our US economics correspondents over in Washington, D.C., Barry Wood. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. You can find more business and finance information and dead parrots in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On tomorrow's program, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Nissin Dialdas, Chief Investment Officer at Mandarin Capital. With a view from Japan is Nick Smith, Japan Strategist at CLSA. Have a great Tuesday. Money Talk. <laughs>